But it's such a fascinating idea because it makes you reassess all of your priors about what the government should be doing and how it's doing it. Um, it lets you really think about how racial divisions are animated in our policy infrastructure. Um, it makes you think about what kind of security people should have and why they should want it. And, you know, I think I wrote the book in part because there were all of these policy experiments that were coming to fruition. And this was like an idea that was gaining traction. But the thing that I liked about it was that it was so expansive. It really lets you think about like, okay, how do we make whole countries richer? How do we get kids to learn? Why do we have the system that we have? Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. And on this show, I, along with my incredible guests, explore what it looks like to live a meaningful life. Each one of my guests wants to leave the planet much better than they found it. Let's Give a Damn family, thank you for showing up. I'm so glad you're here. And welcome to the first podcast episode of 2021. This year is already off to a crazy start. You know, Thousands of white supremacist domestic terrorists storming the Capitol in Washington after the president told them to. Just a few more days until this Trump nightmare is over. My goodness, y'all. Don't worry. I won't bore you with more ranting about this because I'm sure you've been neck deep in it over the past few days. My guest this week is journalist Annie Lowry, who writes on politics and economic policy for The Atlantic, and she is the author of one of my favorite books of 2020, give people money. During this conversation, we talk about an idea that is gaining popularity all over the place, UBI, or a universal basic income. Now, UBI is something that I think is desperately needed and is inevitable given the evolution of technology, income inequality, and so much more. I ask you, all of my listeners, to go into this conversation with an open mind and an open heart. And I ask you to dive into this topic Beyond this podcast conversation, we have so much work to do to make sure everyone is taken care of in our society, because when everyone is cared for, we can and will accomplish so much more together. Before we begin, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. I always love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Annie Lowry. Let's go. pleasure to have Annie Lowry on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. Welcome, Annie. Thank you so much for having me. This is a long time coming, and I'm, I'm really thrilled because um, we're, we're going to get into so much today, but your book, you know, the, the the topic of your book, Give People Money, was already on my radar, you know, UBI and, and uh, other conversations surrounding it, but um, your book was one of the best things that I've read on the topic. And, you know, I knew pretty immediately, like, I wanted to kind of hash things out with you because it's an important, I think it's a really important topic uh, that we need to talk about in these, in these times, especially where there uh, is a sort of a, yeah, kind of a massive growing like income gap and the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. And we're just not set up uh, to take care of people in the ways that I think we need to. Right. Yeah. And so uh, before we get into all of that, though, let's get to know, I, I don't know much about you besides your book. Let's get to know Annie Lowry a little bit. You, so you're, you're, you guys live in California, right? Yeah. So we live in San Francisco. Uh, I had moved to DC after college and lived there for like 12 years, 11 years. And so I'm a, I'm a new Californian, uh, which it's, it's, um, 
you know, it's, it's funny because so much of my experience here has been during COVID, uh, which sure is unusual, but yeah, it's, it's, it's great to be out here and at least to be someplace where, um, the weather is always nice. If you're going to be stuck inside, I guess. <laughs> it is a lot nicer out there. That's for sure. We, <laughs> we, we lived in uh it's a different type of weather, but we lived in Tacoma, Washington before. Yeah. Now, now, now we're in Nashville and we do not like it here. That's a different story for a different day, but <laughs> you know, we live in Tacoma and you know, it's not as sunny as maybe where you are uh, in California, but it's, it is more temperate. Uh, yeah. all, all year round, right? Like I loved yes. that, you know, uh, the lowest it ever got was, you know, maybe 30 degrees, maybe 30 to 40 was like a super, super tragically cold day. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the <laughs> highest, the highest it ever got was like a couple days in the summer in the eighties. And then it was like, just in that mild, like 60s, 70s all the time. It was so, uh, so great. It's super, super nice. Yeah. And it's, it's cool for me. I'd never, I'd never lived on the West coast cause I grew up in new England. So I'd always lived in, uh, unreal America, a cellar corridor, um, and I'm a, I'm a huge defender of DC as a city. People, people really like to crap on DC, but it's an amazing, amazing place to live. Um, but it's been, it's been cool to be out here, even if so much of it has been dominated by, I feel like since we came out, it's just been fires and COVID basically. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, people talk about, people talk about San Francisco as kind of this like, you know, graveyard, right? Like, nope, everybody left. They all left, you know, cause it's obviously a lot of tech people and a lot of companies there. Everybody's yeah. left for Austin and otherwise. Like, how does it feel there? I mean, again, maybe you're not like going out and about all that ton, but does it feel like it's emptied out, or does it feel, still feel like there's life and some some you know level of vibrancy despite the the craziness of the year? Yeah, I mean, I I find that discourse kind of kind of interesting. It's funny. So we we came out here in part because we had just a ton of friends who lived out here. Aside from sort of DC and New York, we had like our largest population of friends lived in the city, but. Um, uh, but they're all like doctors, nurses. We know like a lot of health professionals, weirdly. We actually didn't know that tons of writers didn't know that many people who lived in tech and the people or sorry, worked in tech, the people we know who worked in tech, we knew kind of like not that, not that well and not that personally, maybe you sure. go to dinner with them or something. And so it has been, it's interesting because, you know, quietly people, the people that we know really well are like, wow, the city might get more livable. Like declining rents is a really great thing. Yep. Obviously that's not to, that's not to at all say that COVID is a good thing uh, or that even just tech leaving the Bay would be a good thing, but it is a place that feels completely out of equilibrium, like yep. no place I've ever lived before. Sure. Yeah. Um, it is actually really shocking that just extraordinary, crazy levels of wealth combined with the fact that San Francisco itself is, is struggling mightily with all of these problems. I found the politics out here to be unbelievably fascinating, right? There's this like old chestnut about San Francisco's politics being a knife fight in a phone booth. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's true. You have all of these resources that can't solve these problems um, and kind of like want to vault over them. It's been really fascinating being out here for like the Prop 22 thing. Yeah, it, sure. it has like a dysfunction uh, to it that obviously cities that other cities that I've lived in have had a lot of problems, but um, you know, even DC just didn't feel like it had the, the, like the tearing apart quality yep. that you get in San Francisco. And so it also, it seems to me that like, not that, not that many people have actually left. And, sure. and I don't know, who knows? We'll, yeah, we'll I mean, find I, out eventually. <laughs> yeah. I think it's kind of, I mean, I think a similar argument could be made for, you know, what New York has gone through, right? Like I have so yeah. many, I, I have a few friends that have left, but most have stayed. 
And, you know, if you look at the media and you look at a lot of conversations, you know, it's all the city is empty and this and that. And granted, tens of thousands of apartments are empty right now. But on the positive side, if there is a positive, and I think there are lots of positives that are coming out of this pandemic. There's obviously a shit ton of like terrible things that have happened. But yeah, absolutely. One, one of the things is, yeah, you live in a city that was very un unreachable uh, for so many people. Like they could never, yes. oh, I want to give San Francisco a try. Well, they they just couldn't do it because they can't afford $3,000 for a closet, right? And so now looking at New York, so our, our plan is to, we're hopefully moving to New York in the spring. And, uh, you know, just looking at apartment prices, right? Like, I mean, I was just looking around East Village the other day and yeah, an apartment that listed right before the pandemic for $4,600 a month is it is $2,250 right now. Like it's wow. going to give it, it's going to give a lot of people a chance to maybe move to San Francisco and give it a try, move to New York. And like maybe some of the people that were taking it for granted or have too many resources left and uh, people that don't have as much can come in and sort of like figure yeah. it out, you know, and make, bring a different, bring a different, uh, uh, um, yeah, bring different things to the city. Absolutely. And I do think that there's a way in which um, uh, New York still has this kind of vibrant, functional middle class uh, who live in Brooklyn, who live in Queens, yep, who live yep. in Staten Island, right? Who live um, just across in, in Jersey or yep. like upstate just a little bit. And you have public transit that makes that all like pretty easy and accessible. True. The thing that I found remarkable about San Francisco is, yeah, it just has that complete missing middle, right? Like, how are you supposed to, you know, have, um, like, you know, two decent good salaries, you, you couldn't possibly afford an apartment here. And, and that's not to say that New York isn't expensive. But New York does have just, you know, like, um, so much more housing stock. And it's True. been fascinating, because like, while I lived in DC, the complaint there was that there was too much building, it was gentrifying too fast. Um, DC's like longtime vibrant black middle class was getting displaced into Maryland. But DC built 1000s of units of apartments while I was there. And a lot mm. of the complaint was about the building and, you know, these like ugly squat, like there's a name for them that now I can't remember, but like the condo version of McMansions, these like four to eight high rises with like yep. retail on the first floor. Yep. And people like get really mad about that. But it did mean that people, the city grew by like a yep. hundred thousand people just during the time that I lived there. And here, like there's no cranes in San Francisco. Nothing gets built. It's like mind boggling to actually see a really vibrant place kind of strangle itself basically mm. because it can't tackle these problems. Uh, yeah, there's there's no building here ever. <laughs> like it's it's kind of crazy. That's that's wild. I mean, if, like we live in Nashville where where yeah. uh, where I mean there's I think there's 19 or 21 cranes over I think that right now I think Nashville has the most cranes for the size of our city like anywhere in the US. Like they huh. can't they can't stop building here and so it's the complete opposite. Uh, yeah. here where they're capitalizing on, I mean, a lot of people, maybe even from San Francisco, but definitely LA and New York have moved here yeah. since the pandemic started. I mean, we are just getting flooded with like all my friends in real estate, they're doing super fucking well because yeah. they've been selling houses left and right to all these people that are coming from these other cities to, you know, have a little bit more of a backyard, front porch, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. What are you doing to like, what has kept you sane during these 10 months of not doing many of the things that we did before? Like what, what is keeping you going? I mean, obviously you have a family, you have a kid and all that. So that's yeah. helpful. I've, I've loved being home with my, I spent a lot of time on the road before this happened. Yeah, uh, I was gone at least two weeks a month. And now I've been home for 10 months. I've been on a plane since February. And so I, I love that. But like outside of family and stuff, what, what's sort of been keeping you going? 
You know, it was funny. Um, my husband and I, so not this past Thanksgiving, but the Thanksgiving before we were talking about our like 2020 resolutions and, um, we were driving back. We had gone to, um, have the holiday with his family in LA. We were driving back and because we had a kid, we were driving back like in the middle of the night so that the kid would like sleep oh, yeah. in his car seat. I know the drill. And, yep. <laughs> like, like mainlining caffeine. And our goal for the year was to not travel so much. Um, we had like done this calculation that both of us together, whether we were traveling together or traveling individually for work, had taken a total of 24 trips in the first year of our son's life, right? And as you, you know, like having a baby is, is tough and we still just like piled all of this stuff up on top of it. And um, so it's been, and then 2020 happened and I, we have not gone anywhere <laughs> since March. And so it's actually been nice. I've read so many more books. I've watched so many more movies. I've got to spend so much more time with my kid and my dogs than I would have. And I am filled with gratitude um, that we live in a place that takes COVID really seriously yeah. and uh, where mask wearing is absolutely universal. Um, and, you know, the new variant of COVID is really frightening. And obviously what's happening in California right now is just unbelievably tragic. Um, but it has been nice to take more walks and to, you know, go hiking with the dogs or put the baby in a backpack and get out. And so um, it was uh, last last year, one of my reading projects was I read like five Graham Greene books, which I never, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done. Yeah. Graham, Graham yeah. Greene turns out is a really, really good novelist, and I really highly recommend that uh, people people delve into his work. Um, and so, you know, it was personally there were a lot of upsides. You know, neither me nor my husband lost our jobs, and we kind of transferred into being able to do a lot of reporting from home. And so, I feel really grateful for that. Um, is there is there a thing that has been keeping you going during this hell year that just ended? Yeah, I mean, I. <laughs> I have started another company in a nonprofit this year. Man. Um, and basically coffee, cigars, and weed are keeping me going. Uh, if I'm being <laughs> if I'm being completely honest. Like, I mean, yeah, and I, I've read a ton, spent a yeah. ton of time with my kids. It's been really good. Like, I do long to travel again, like yes. so badly. Oh, I, I, I cannot want, wait. I want to get on a plane so badly and just go anywhere. Like, I'll just take a trip to get on a plane and then come right back. Like, round trip, get right back on the plane and come back. I just need to get out of, especially, so you, you mentioned like being in a place, grateful being in a place that, that takes us seriously. I live in the opposite. I mean, I live in the COVID capital of the world. I mean, we are, we are, we have more case per capita than anywhere on the planet earth. Right. So I live in a place where, yes, I do live in a blue sort of like a blue little dot on the map in the midst of a sea of red. So there is more taking it seriously here, but I mean, it's it's still pretty tragic to see what's happening right around me with you know this this pandemic so it's not been as easy to find people that take it equally as seriously i mean we've we've lost some you know some friends and some you know friendships have gone by the wayside because of this pandemic because just so many people here are not taking it seriously. So thus we can't go out to as many places because, you know, we have to, like when we go to the park with the kids, we bring our masks along in case there's, in case like just so that we have them with us. If there's anybody there, we don't stay. And so just like finding, because, because likely the people that are there don't have masks on, you know, and we're going to be like playing on the playground with them. And so it's just been really, 
difficult to be in this place. But yeah, I've read, my wife read 120 books. I read half of that because uh, I just worked too damn much. Um, and so, yeah, we've just doing a lot of like just family stuff, you know, and it's yeah. been really, really good. My kids now, you know, I get to see them 20 times a day instead of for a couple hours, you know, at the beginning of the day and the end, or yeah. when I'm like gone for a week at a time. And so they now, they get mad at me when I have to go out and work because they see me so much. And I love that. I mean, like, I still got to go work, but they love that I'm around more, you know, it's like they've gotten used yeah. to me again, instead of like having a relationship with me through FaceTime or whatever. Yeah, so that's, that's so great. And I'm with you. Like my favorite, I could leave, I could take or leave writing. I love reporting. Like I live to report and yeah. I have gotten the opportunity to report from some really amazing places and to have really amazing experiences. And I was like, I want to be like having not showered in five days in the middle of nowhere, doing something stupid, probably like, I cannot wait to get back to, that's just the experience that, that you can't like replicate if you're, nope. if you're stuck in your house. Um, and reporting on the phone, you know, it, it works and it's so important not to put anybody in danger, but it'll be really cool to just get out there and, and do weird stuff again. <laughs> There's nothing that takes the place of, of, yeah, the human interaction, the human touch, yeah. the human like being in front of people. I mean, before the pandemic started, yeah, this we're on like I've done 180 episodes on this podcast, and you know, before it started, maybe five uh, out of the 120 at that point were all done in person. So I spent a yep. lot of time traveling around. You know, I yeah. spent so much money like just getting places so I could be yeah. with the people. And now I've done I did 50 something last year and you know, 50, yeah, all of them were, were virtual. Yeah. And so I've gotten used to this, but it's not the same. I'd love to be having, you know, coffee with you in the same room and like really yes. like, you know, diving in. But so uh, yeah, I, I too can't wait to, uh, get back to normal. Here's a quirky question. Yeah. Uh, you, so you're married to Ezra Klein. Yep. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Ezra's, uh, work and his podcast. And I'm, you know, I'm a faithful listener, but I have to, I was sitting here as I was thinking about, you know, this conversation we're about to have, I'm like, shit, like the conversations, so there's two scenarios in my mind. You, you and your, you and uh, Ezra are super smart, both of you, like really, really smart. Um, and I'm like, I, I've I've said often before thinking about Ezra because I think we're he's he's younger than me, and I'm like, how does someone like much younger than me have you know three of my lifetimes of intelligence like crammed into that brain, you know? So I was thinking like, what are the conversations like? There's two scenarios in my mind. Either the conversations in your house are like always, you know, intellectual, uh, yeah. you know, where you're always talking about smart things, or do you talk about it so much for work, you know, where you're always reporting and doing podcasts that when you guys like hang out, you guys just like eat, you know, junk food and watch junk TV just to like decompress. Like what is sort of that dynamic in your home? Because yeah, both of you do sort of outward facing work where you have to talk on, you know, big topics and complex topics and ideas. And so what does that look like in, in the home? It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I would say that probably like any couple, a lot of our conversation is just about like what one of our dogs is doing or who is taking care of the kid or, you know, like who's making who's making lunch and who's responsible for laundry. There's a, Normal a tremendous, stuff. A, tremendous amount of that. It is really nice that we um, we do work that's sort of adjacent to each other, but we um, uh, work in really different ways. And it's really nice to like, I edit him and he edits me sometimes. Sure. Occasionally we do read the same books. I feel comfortable saying that he has 
just terrible taste in like movies and music. And so we don't share so much of that. He's also quite extroverted and I'm quite introverted. And so uh, very often we'll decompress in opposite fashions. And so it's funny in COVID, I feel like he's just like dying to go out to like go party, go dancing, go like, I don't know, just like see, see people have dinner parties, whatever. And I'm like, I've not been alone in like a year. Like I've not been alone in a year. I want to go someplace, which is perfectly silent for a long time. Um, uh, and so, yeah, but it's, it's really nice. Like he just, he, he, it's nice having access to somebody else's brain like that. Um, and I hope that I would play the same role. I'm sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's funny because, because our work is often touching on the same topics, but like the way that we write is really, really different. Like I do a lot more in-person reporting than he does and, uh, do much less opinionated work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it. Cause so he's in a job transition right now. So he had been managing people for like seven years and he's now just going to be writing, which I think will feel really good for him. Uh, yeah, he was at, he was at Vox and he's going, is it New York times? Is that where he's moving? Yeah, he's going to the New York times op-ed page. So it's, it's going to be a really, really different, <laughs> different thing that he, he won't be managing anymore. Uh, and we'll just be able to talk to people. Fascinating. Write. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, just one thing before we move on, you know, you talked about how he's extroverted, you're introverted. That's the same. That's the last thing I'll say on this whole pandemic thing is, uh, <laughs> My wife and I have a really good relationship. I'm super grateful for her. And also, like, she, I think, wants to get rid of me so badly. Not, like, she just <laughs> just go. Like, I have a lot of my friends who would love to travel more for work and for pleasure for whatever. Yeah. And, in, you know, in a lot of times, just, just uh, you know, because of the dynamics of family and kids and all that, like, they don't get to leave as much because, you yep. know, th- 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 their partner needs help in the home and they, you can't leave for a week at a time. And my, like, my situation has always been, Hey babe, I've got to go to New York to do these podcasts or whatever. And she's like, cool. We'll just compare calendars. Like she's never, ever once told me you can't go on a trip because she, uh-huh. I think partially she's, she's a badass, you know, uh, yeah. and she, she can take care of everything, but also I think she want like, she's like, get out for a few days so that sure. I like you a lot more when you get back. Uh-huh. And, it's, and it's been none of that for 10 months. I think she too is looking for forward to some normalcy so that Nick can, you know, say, hey, babe, I need to go to LA. I need to go to New York. Let me get out of here. And she's like, please go, like book the fucking ticket and leave. I think it she's is, looking. It's going to be so fascinating to watch people once, once everybody is vaccinated and we have herd immunity or once you're personally vaccinated and can travel again and feel a little bit more confident with that, like what it is that people do. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and so it sounds like she'll be like, see you later. And you'll yes. be like, yeah, I'm going. <laughs> she, will, she will 100% see you say, see you later. And I will be clicking on the book it ticket while she's saying that for that first plane ticket. Um, <laughs> how are you feeling today with just, again, we're going to get into UBI in just a couple minutes, but yeah. I just wanted to kind of open up with some of this stuff. How are you feeling today? So we've got a couple dynamics going on. One is, I think we have some really good news coming out of Georgia yeah. um, with the, you know, the runoff race. It uh, looks like we've got both of those seats in, I, I think, I can say we, based on what I know about you and your politics and stuff, uh, we've got those two seats. And but then also you've got this different scene in, uh, you know, Washington, your old home today, where you know tens of thousands. You know, the the president said two hundred and fifty thousand. I don't know how much legitimacy there is to that number because he doesn't know numbers very well. But like you know, there's a lot of people in our capital right now uh, supporting the false claims. Uh, 
uh, from our president and from other Republican leaders. So there's this weird dynamic where like last night I went to bed feeling like pretty strongly and pretty okay about, okay, I think we've, we've got this now. You know, it's amazing that Georgia's flipped blue and hopefully we'll see some, you know, great things come out in the next few years. But then at the same time, we've got, uh, you know, this weird dynamic in Washington right now. Now I'm confident that nothing's going to come of it. I mean, there's no way Trump is president in 14 days, but just the process of getting there, you know, where he said like simultaneously while Pence was getting ready for the joint session, like an hour and a half ago, you know, Trump was saying outside the Capitol, I will never concede. Like it's this weird dynamic. Yeah. So kind of politically and society, like how are you doing and what are you <laughs> hopeful for right now? <laughs> yeah. So, um, White nationalism and the terrorist violence that comes with it is absolutely petrifying to me. And it is something that I really hope the Biden administration um, uses the power of the state to tamp down on. I think that we've seen this like winking, nodding, and sometimes straight bullhorning um, sense from the president who is, you know, a white nationalist himself that, well, this is all okay. We're taking our country back. Right. It's this absolutely revolting ideology that has had this terrifying prominence. And I feel like for me, right, like D.C., yes, it's the seat of our government. It's where people come from around the country um, to to make our laws and to make policy. But it's also a city itself mm, um, sure. with 800,000 people who live there, many of whom work for the government, but are not policymaking um, exactly, right? Like these aren't politicians. Um, these are the people who are making sure that the mail system runs or working in yeah. HHS to make sure that there are appropriate regulations or they work at FDA. And, you know, until really recently, DC was a majority black city. Um, it's now, you know, uh, still a very multiracial um, city. And so it's just, it's heartbreaking and so upsetting to see that happen. Mm. And I still, I follow it so closely because so many of our friends live there and it's been really hard not going back to DC this past year um, for me. And so, you know, to, to have people come and basically proclaim that they're going to be violent, <laughs> um, you know, not just in the place of government, but um, but in this place that that hundreds of thousands of people call home is really upsetting. And and again, I just hope that, you know, we've seen some really amazing reporting. Um, I know there was a great Washington Post story about this, about how the Department of Justice um, uh, has not taken. Uh, white nationalist threats seriously enough has not treated them as terrorism. So really, you know, upsetting to see that that 5G tower got taken out with the exploding RV. And I felt like that wasn't treated as exactly the was three miles. That was three miles from my house. Like I, I yeah, it's right in my backyard. It's so unbelievably upsetting. Yep. And so I feel like, um, you know, there's um, my colleague, Ibram Kendi, and uh, a lot of my other colleagues have, I think, been really at the vanguard of advancing this notion of, right, like, how do we move towards a more anti-racist, less racist society? And I, I do feel like part of this is, you know, seeing this threat for, for what it is and um, how upsetting that has been. Yeah, so that's, that's that. Um, on Georgia, I had not... I had not expected both of those seats to flip. Mm. And I feel like it hasn't exactly sunk in for me yet how different the world is. So, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to get rid of the filibuster. Joe Manchin is not in support of that. And Joe Manchin is now, for better or worse, one of the most powerful people in our government. Yes. Um, but this is this is such a sea change, right? Budget Chairman Bernie Sanders. Budget Chairman. Wild. Bernie Sanders. Um, the fact that the Biden team will be able to get 
most of their nominees through pretty quickly is really, really different. Um, You know, the amount of stuff that they can do, even though, you know, they won't get rid of the filibuster, it looks like, but the amount of policy that you can do through, it's this kind of arcana, but it's called budget reconciliation, which these are the bills that cannot be filibustered. Is pretty, it's pretty sizable, right? Like $1,400 additionally is going to go out to people. Um, we should get some really good expansion of Medicaid, which is a really successful program, really important part of the ACA. Um, and there's a lot that the Biden administration can do unilaterally policy-wise. Um, I would really hope that we could see climate legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a new provision that just came through that says that, you know, climate-related bills are not subject to PAYGO, which is really, really important. So it is It is just um, uh, it's an amazing thing to see and just, just watch the political transformation of the state of Georgia, right, like a former state of the Confederacy, it's like, you know, has now a black senator. Like, that's really great and really awesome. And so I feel like, yeah, it hasn't exactly, I think because people didn't exactly expect for this to go to the, <laughs> this way. And it just shows that it's also, it's a pretty politically confusing time. Like, I think Trump probably did a little bit better and Democrats didn't do great on the down ballot in the election, no. but then to pick these two seats up. And I would also say, not to be political about it, but um, Loeffler and Purdue we're not exactly like great candidates or great like policy no, lights if, in the wasn't, Republican establishment. It wasn't, yeah. it shouldn't have been hard to beat them any way you slice it. They're not yeah. wonderful, right? They were really uniquely weak candidates, both of them. The stuff with Loeffler and her money and the stock trades and Purdue, I mean, it's just, um, that is one thing that I really do hope that they do is just bar members of Congress from trading individual stocks. It's absolutely it's bonkers, it's unconscionable that that isn't just law. So yeah, yep, yep. Anyway, yeah. that was like a long disquisition. No, nope. that, that's that. that's what I was looking for. I mean, it is a yeah. very you, you you hit the nail on the head. It's a very confusing time politically. Like, although I am excited about some of these things that are happening. Um, um, it's it's not exciting how divided we are. It's not no. exciting how close these races are. It's not exciting to me that 74 million people voted for Donald Trump on his second term, like yeah. after all the shit that he pulled for four years. Like that's mm-hmm. not exciting to me. That is discouraging in every single way that 74 million people, including people that are near and dear to my heart and my family, uh, you know, you know, cast that vote. Some of them not even the first time, but they chose to do it the second time because they saw this this boogeyman, you know, that was going to change everything named Joe Biden. And so they thought that this was still the right choice. Like it's it's wild to me and it's very confusing. And I'm just I'm hoping for you know, there's a lot of healing rhetoric right now from from uh, you know pe- people that I love and respect on the left, and I just hope we can accomplish some of that because this isn't going away. The 74 people, four, four million people that voted for Trump, they're not; those are still our neighbors and our friends and people that are in close proximity to us. So, like, what what do we do now? Like, sure, we can be idiots, so we can shit all over them for losing, you know, the House or the Senate and the, you know the presidency after mm-hmm. a first term. But that, what is that going to get us? You know, like, I don't want to mm-hmm. live in a place where every race is like the Georgia runoff, you know, where it's like 49.8% to 50.2%. That's four tenths of a percent. Like that is not, it shouldn't be that close. And we are so deeply divided. So I'm, we'll see. I'm excited that we can get back to some normalcy. I don't have to check Twitter every 10 and a half seconds, but it's still not good. Like it's still, we're not in a great place uh, right now. So yeah, you wrote a book 
as I mentioned at the beginning, called Give People Money. And, yep. you know, you're known uh, in your career as, you know, a, a journalist writing on politics and economy and stuff like that. Um, what what was going on in your life and career at the time that pushed you to want to write a book uh, on giving people money, literally, on, you know, just sort of describing your views on a, a universal basic income, why it's important, what works, what doesn't work, all of that stuff. What was going on that made you want to do that at this, you know, because it's a year and a half old. So at, at this point in time in our history, and, you know, in the middle of a Trump presidency, like what made you want to write this book? So UBI, um, for people who haven't, the the vast majority of people who have not read the book, UBI is a really old idea. Sure. Um, and like five 500 years old, old. Um, but it has never been tried anywhere. Um, we have some things that sort of approximate it, but, but it's not in existence in any country or any place. I would, you know, certainly at not at any scale. And, and the whole idea of UBI is that, you know, a government would give people cash unconditionally and to everybody in perpetuity. And it's, it's sort of, it sounds outrageous on its face, but the more you think about it, uh, you can look around and you can see that we have all sorts of things that are sort of like that. And we know a lot about what would happen if you did something like that. And, and the reason that I wanted to write the book was that it's just such an, I'm not even still sure that UBI is necessarily like the number one policy idea that I would implement if all of a sudden I was queen or, you know, could magic wand things into existence. Sure. But it's such a fascinating idea because it makes you reassess all of your priors about what the government should be doing and how it's doing it. Um, it lets you really think about how racial divisions are animated in our policy infrastructure. Um, it makes you think about what kind of security people should have and why they should want it. And, you know, I think I wrote the book in part because there were all of these policy experiments that were coming to fruition. And this was like an idea that was gaining traction. But the thing that I liked about it was that it was so expansive. It really lets you think about like, okay, how do we make whole countries richer? How do we get kids to learn? Why do we have the system that we have? And it had that sort of like depth of, depth of, um, uh, intellectual interest for me. Uh, and so that was, that was why I wrote the book and I've known Andrew Yang for a long time. Uh, and he hadn't, when I was writing the book, he hadn't, um, started campaigning for president yet. It was actually quite a while before that. Sure. Um, but I am, I, I, I do think that he really pushed that idea to the forefront, um, in a great way. And, I'll be interested to see how his mayoral campaign might lead to <laughs> even more interest in it. Um, or, you know, if he ends up going into the Biden administration or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There were two people that came to mind, uh, you know, as I've explored this uh, idea of the UBI over the last couple of years, um, there's th two people besides yourself that I've sort of, you know, I interacted with, you know, on, you know, books yeah. and videos and all that. One is Andrew Yang. Um, and you know, two is, uh, Rutger Bregman, the, yep. you know, the Dutch historian who, you know, he kind of went viral and got famous after that calling out billionaires for tax evasion at Davos, you know, a couple yes. of years ago. Right. Um, have you, so it sounds like, have you interacted with, uh, one or both of those, 
uh, individuals on this topic or or not? Because because I eventually want to get to there's different versions of yes, you know what what a UBI looks like, right? That's the big idea, but there's different versions of how it plays out or why it's beneficial and all that stuff. So have you have you interacted with them at all on this? Yeah, both of them. Um, I've never met Rutger, um, but I read and I loved his book. And Andrew and I have known each other uh, not super well, but we've known each other for for quite some time now. Yeah. Yeah, Rutgers books, both of them, Utopia for Realists and his new one, Humankind. Yeah. He's another one. You know, I mentioned Ezra earlier where I'm like, fuck, these guys are so friggin' smart. Uh, <laughs> Rutgers, another one where I'm like, this guy's brain, I think he's like 32 or 33 and his brain is just like, it works a million miles a minute and he's so smart and I love it. I love listening to Rutger. He, I've, both Andrew and Rutger are both, uh, we've been in touch on being on the podcast with both of them, but it's, you know, their yeah. schedules are so crazy. And so it's yes. like, we'll we'll get to it when we can, because I would love to, you know, uh, talk with them. So uh, you mentioned earlier, this is a, bi- you know, it's really been a bipartisan idea, right? You wouldn't yep. think that, uh, like on the fr- on the face of it, you wouldn't think that conservatives, any conservatives or any libertarians for that matter would get on board with this because this is gonna, it's gonna involve, a UBI involves sort of a central structure, AKA the government, you know, uh, building policies and and everything around this idea so they could disperse these funds, right? But it is, so again, you wouldn't think that that would be the case, but there are kind of, there's kind of bipartisan support for this. Why, Absolutely. Why, why is that though? Because it's it makes sense that it's a, you know, a, a left-leaning idea um, because of how we, yeah, part of the, part of the foundation in the platform is to take care of people and take care of them well, even if it means that we don't get as much in the end. But that's not, you know, a conservative and a libertarian idea. So how, how does it, how is it a bipartisan idea? Yeah. So I think that, that where it cuts against what the left has been doing in interesting ways, because I think that, that you could almost like make a matrix of like, you know, like why is it supported and why is it detracted, not supported among conservatives and libertarians, especially. And then why would it be supported and not supported among liberals? And, um, this actually gets to the $2,000 checks question. So liberals, um, I think completely correctly believe that we need a more progressive infrastructure in the United States because we have so much inequality, we're not remedying it. And we have, um, deep poverty and child poverty levels that our peer countries in the OECD don't have. Um, so it's something like four times as many children proportionately live in, in poverty in the U S here than in some of our peer countries. So like France or Denmark. Right. And we have, we have absolutely the resources to solve that. That is not like a resource issue. We just choose not to, um, and complicated reasons why we do that. And so progressives say, well, if we have all of this inequality, why are we wasting money by giving it to rich people? And so this is a lot of the objection to the $2,000 checks is they're going to families up with up to, I think, $75,000 in income currently. But there's all these people who are like, hey, I haven't lost my job. Uh, I live in a household that has more than $75,000 in income. You don't have to worry about me. Don't send me money. Um, and economists are saying like, this is not properly, right? The term is always targeted. This isn't targeted. Why do we give money to people who, there's, there's a really good reason for that. And so then conservatives and why would, why would liberals like this, right? Because it's, it's using the lever of government to uh, provide a universal safety net. It's a pretty powerful thing. And then conservatives, 
why would they detract from it, right? Like this is socialism, this is too much, it's not targeted. Like why should, you know, people people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We don't wanna remove the incentive for people to work and work hard. Um, and we don't wanna overtax people uh, such that it's unfair and it reduces business generation and all of this stuff. So obvious, obvious conservative arguments against it. And then the conservative argument for it though, is that it's just simple. It doesn't require much administratively. Uh, it's not, com you don't need, you can look at um, the social security agency, which uh, is what sends out social security is like tiny. It's really simple. It's really effective. It's really small versus take HHS and all the state health agencies, which administer yeah. public health benefit. I mean, it's huge. It's complicated. Um, tens of thousands of bureaucrats are required. Um, and I think that libertarians, so Charles, Charles Murray of the bell curve fame, mm -hmm. have a lot of issues with a lot of Charles Murray's arguments, um, basically says like, you don't need to like means test and tell whether people like need things or not. Just, just give, give it to them. Right. Like the government doesn't need to be nannying people about, you know, can you spend things on this or that? Um, and doesn't even need to be concerning itself with figuring out what people need, right? Like just, just give them money. So I think that, um, you know, all of these, these, that's where the bipartisanship kind of comes in is conservatives sort of say, oh, this is like a way of doing small government. The administration is really tiny and the government is not getting involved in the details of people's lives. Um, whereas I think progressives conversely see it, see it as a way to really provide a floor under people that we don't have. What is your, like, if you, if you could implement this, if you were, you know, the president and you could, you know, sort of pass this legislation and get it, you know, to be more widely accepted, like what, cause again, there's multiple different ways of doing this. There's different ways that it would be implemented. Like what would your ideal, because you've studied it way more than I have and you wrote a book on it. Like what is your ideal version of the UBI, even like down to like what amount, as you've looked at different places, you've, you know, you've, you've uh, truthfully said that no country or place has instituted this, but small like towns in different places have tried yeah. this out. And we've got Alaska that has a version of the UBI, right? Where they get money yep. every year. It's a lot smaller than a thousand a month, but you know, they get money every year. And so there's different places that have implemented it. And there's enough data at this point to see that it, it, it works and it's helpful. Yeah. Um, so like, what would you, what would you institute? What would that look like? So I feel like if 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 I were choosing policy, um, first of all, I think that you want to do UBI for kids like first and foremost. Um, there's actually a proposal in the Senate, and Joe Biden has signed on to this that would you know just give cash to parents. Mm. Um, we do not spend enough on children in this country. We spend yeah. a very small fraction of what again our peers in the OECD spend. Um, the fact that we have children who grow up in poverty um, is a policy catastrophe and a moral blight, right? We do not take care of our own kids. And so if I were thinking about, you know, what do you want to implement first? Yeah, child allowance, which again is basically UBI for children, would probably be the first thing. Then I like the idea of UBIing a lot of the programs that we have. So for instance, food stamps work pretty well. They're a really great anti-poverty policy tool. 
Um, there's all sorts of things that you cannot buy with food stamps and they're yep. really kludgy. So it's like, just give people the cash. And that way, if they need to use it, like to keep their lights on or to put gas in the car so that they can get their kids to school or to work, right? Why Why are we stepping in and, and judging? And so you say, oh, but then it's like a less effective anti-hunger program. And that's that's probably true. But it also means that you're entrusting people um, with the capacity to make that decision themselves. As for like the big full fat $1,000 a month to everybody UBI, it's not such a terrible idea when you remember, and it's not like such a crazy idea when you remember that for people over a certain income level, you would just tax it back, right? Yep. So right, if you're right. making like $400,000 a year, all of a sudden you're getting this $12,000 tax benefit, but then we just increase your taxes by $12,000 net net you get nothing, right? And um, so, uh, you know, you need to figure out how to make the system progressive because we don't want to be giving just a thousand dollars a month um, to families that are that are poor. But like, what I like about this is that it is um, an actual safety net that is immediate and responsive. And so you don't have to have all of this policy architecture to determine who needs what and how to get it. Um, like in terms of other policies that I really like, I would just eliminate TANF, which is our cash welfare program. Mm. It is racist. It is a bureaucratic nightmare. It is deeply, deeply unfair. There's all of these work requirements. And you talk to anybody who's applied for welfare and they will just tell you how awful it is. Um, you know, uh, so I just get rid of it. And again, just do a child allowance. And TANF is about the parent, right? It attaches to the parent. Um, and the nice thing about child allowances is that they they attach to the kid. All, all it needs to happen is that you're a kid. And just generally, I would get rid of a lot of policy complexity and means testing across the government. Work requirements for things like food stamps, Medicaid, I would get rid of those. They're terrible. They're racist. They're very bureaucratically clunky. Um, and so I feel like you can use, and this is you know a point made often in the book, is you can use UBI as kind of like a North Star to tell you how to make other programs better. And it's like, make them simpler, uh, make them easier to get, yep. um, get rid of the bureaucratic kludge, stop judging people so much, just let people live their lives. Um, but yeah, so those, those are some of the animating ideas. Why have, so you, you touched on it a couple of times in this yeah. last couple of minutes, how complicated everything is, how complicated things are here. Everything yes. from, you know, you know, food stamps and different welfare programs and, and also like our taxes. So I, oh. this, this might be a very unfair question, but you do write on, you know, uh, the economy and money and otherwise. So why, you know, I'm thinking about taxes, right? I've been self-employed for, um, five years now. Yeah. And, um, well, even before we were self-employed, we, you know, 10 years ago, before we had our first child, we were, uh, it, it, we were adopting a child as a, you know, in a, as a first child, we had a very complicated first pregnancy. And mm -hmm. so we couldn't get pregnant for a year. So we mm. decided to adopt our first instead of our second. Anyway, we had, you know, we had spent fourteen fifteen thousand $15,000 in the adoption. The birth mother backed out. It was kind of a weird, crazy, like couple of months, but there's a tax credit that you can, you know, apply for. Yeah. And we did at that point, like I didn't have, now I have a CPA that does everything. Like I don't touch yep. any of it, but back then it was, I was still trying to do it myself, right? Trying to figure all this out. And we ended up calculating uh, poorly. And, you know, because of the tax, because of the adoption credit, we got a bunch of money back that year. 
And then nine months, no, more than that. It was the next year. It was it was after the next tax year. I got a bill for, I think it was thirteen thousand dollars, from the from the IRS that I, that I owed them thirteen thousand dollars. And this was back. This was ten years ago. Recently married, first kid, was not making nearly what I'm making now. Sure, like thirteen thousand felt like. I mean, you might as well just like just punch me in the face a hundred times. Like that was yeah. that was a blow. You know, hours of negotiation on the phone with IRS got it down to like seven thousand, still seven thousand, right? And it's like that changed my perspective. You know, that again, that was recently married. Things were getting more complicated financially in terms of where things were coming from and all that stuff. And now we have a kid, blah blah blah. It's like, why do we make things so fucking complicated in this country? Like, it's not that hard. Like, there are other countries where, you know, the taxes are are even higher than they are here. But you just get a bill. You just get a bill. They tell you how much you owe, and you pay it. Here, now my problem with being self-employed is just, yeah, having to like set aside all the, you know, the, the 30, 30 something percent that I make from everything and, you know, getting it to the right place and still not knowing if that's the right amount and still working through things with my accountant, you know, every February and whatnot. It's just, it's such a cluster with these programs and with taxes. Why, why do we do that? And, and do you have hope that that could ever change? I mean, I love that you're talking about UBI is like, no, guys, this is simple. This is simple. This is something that we could use as a North Star as sort of a pilot program for how, how simplified things could actually get. We're yep. making it, we're making it harder on ourselves. Yeah. So yeah. What, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, why, why do we do this? Yes. Um, and has, and, 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 sorry. And has it always been that way here in the U S yeah. or is it because we've gotten so freaking big and things have just gotten so messy. Yeah. Um, you are absolutely correct that, uh, the United States is a bureaucratic nightmare when it comes to individual interaction with government. Right. So as you point out in many European countries, tax authority just tells you what you owe. You can contest it if you want, or you think that there's something, but like, it's literally in some cases done by cell phone. Like you can just text, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, whereas here, uh, that's not true. And, and in fact, we have this entire infrastructure architecture of these businesses that manage all of the taxes, right? Like it's, it's just, it's a tax on everybody's time because the government does that, doesn't do that, that bureaucratic management. I think this is a bipartisan thing though. I do think that, um, Republican refusal to invest in the actual functioning of government is at stake here. But like every agency of the government is, is like, it's like the DMV everywhere, right? Um, The fact that we don't have a universal health system. So we have this hugely balkanized process where people spend hours on the phone negotiating with hospitals and insurers and you get billed. It's, it's, Absolutely. Oh gosh. It like, yeah. it makes me it's sick in nightmare. my stomach. Yeah. It is an actual nightmare. And, and that's not to say other countries don't have socialized medicine like the NHS, but they do have fully functioning universal health systems, even if uh, the individual components, the insurers and the hospitals are private. So there's that. Um, I, I think about you, you look everywhere and you see clutch, right? Um, what we put people through uh, who are formerly incarcerated. Oh it's God. like a paperwork nightmare mm-hmm. to have gone to jail or to prison. Um, uh, Childcare, you're just on your own from zero to five. There's just nothing, right? <laughs> right? Unless you happen to live in one of the very few places um, that has pre-K three and four. 
Um, yeah, figure it out, parents. You just do it. So we have fewer public goods. Uh, we have much more complicated bureaucratic systems. My favorite example of this, and again, I think that this is bipartisan because I think that Democrats are about like creating perfect intricate policies to help individual people and forgetting that nobody wants the perfect intricate policy anyway. Right. Um, here in California, there is a provision um, that lets people uh, with low incomes get a free or reduced price driver's license. And so you think, okay, that's like a nice and a good thing. What do you have to do to get the free or reduced price driver's license? You can think that like, maybe you take a tax form and you just show it at the DMV, maybe even like self-certify and just say that you're below an income limit and, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, maybe there's a form that you have to fill out. There is a form that you have to fill out, but you cannot access it as an individual Californian you have to fill the form out. It has to be filled out um, by a certified person, uh, most of whom work in homeless shelters. So if you're not homeless, why on earth would you go to a shelter to like get this benefit that's what, like 40 or 50 bucks? And you see this just replicated everywhere. And I think that the, the beating heart of this is racism, right? Mm. Mm. We wanted mm. to make it hard uh, for people of color and especially black Americans to access these programs. We want these programs to be paternalistic, to change the behavior of uh Black families because we want them to believe that their poverty is their own fault. And, and that's why we have this. And I would, I would note that, you know, um, racism and our, our, the historical legacy of slavery, and I know that this probably sounds like a little bit ridiculous, but I, I do think it's true, is why we have uh, the federalized system that we do which means that the federal government doesn't actually manage that much. All of the management falls to the states who then get to set their own rules. And so you have this really bureaucratically inefficient system set up throughout the entire country. And so, um, you know, I think that, that um, that's fundamentally the reason. And so these small, you know, often European, but not exclusively European countries uh, that are more homogenous where there's this feeling that everybody is like literally related to one another, have ended up having uh, much more bureaucratically advanced systems than the U.S. has. Um, I think uh, because we're so big, so fractious, not homogenous at all, um, and and I think that race is a big part of that. Race is a huge part of it, and we I think we've seen that more than ever, at least in yes. my lifetime during this uh, pandemic, right? I mean, you know, 11% of white-owned businesses will close their doors as a result of the pandemic, 50% of black-owned businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, people of color are being disproportionately hurt and stomped on. And we're seeing that, again, it, it, we could ignore it before or not. If, if you give a damn, like you already knew that it was happening before, but a lot of people just ignored it. Like, oh, I, I don't have to pay attention to that. But now we're seeing it. Um, you know, right in front of us. And you brought up something that I think is interesting. It's one of the questions that, um, it's one of the things that always comes up is poor people are poor because they, they want to be that way. They can mm -hmm. get out. You can get, you can stop being poor. And the reality is that, but unless like, yes, you could be the lucky one. You could be the lucky one to, you know, whatever, uh, just some random stupid, you could be the lucky one to get, you know, get your audition on American Idol and boom, you're now this like well-known singer or you're like, you happened upon a, you know, a, a, a competition to, to build this and they loved your stuff and you were poor and then you got well-known, whatever. But like most people can't get out of it. Like you can't get out of it. The system is built 
so that you stay in it forever. Mm-hmm. And as we get bigger and as we get uh, wealthier as a country, the richer keep getting richer and the poorer keep getting poorer. And um, I, I uh, you know, one of the questions that always comes up with UBI and really any any liberal leftist, you know, policy that's going to require a lot of money is people are always saying, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it, right? And that to me has been one of the easiest, you know, you addressed it a few few minutes ago a little bit when you were talking about how we, there's all these programs that we could stop doing it in this very bureaucratic, complicated way, micromanaging everybody, judging everybody, telling them what they can and cannot buy and put that money toward this. But also we have plenty of fucking money. Like we have so much money. Like billionaires are getting off scot-free. I I, I did a little like TikTok. Uh, I don't dance on TikTok, but I just rant on TikTok. And you know, for the most part, most of my stuff goes unnoticed. I'm not like big on there, but I, one really resonated. It's got like 200,000 views and it was about billionaires. It was about the fact, I just did some simple math. You know, if you make $11,200 a day, Mm -hmm. uh, since the declaration of independence was signed in 1776, you'd still not have a billion dollars today. Uh, for a, a person making minimum wage, 725 an hour, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, and that's again, that's no, that's no vacation. That's somebody working every single day, uh, you know, that they possibly could work in a year. It would take them sixty-five thousand years to become a billionaire. Like a billionaire is like a billion dollars is. It's immoral to me. I'm all for people making as much money as they can, mm-hmm. but you don't make as 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 our beloved AOC said. You don't make a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. Like making a billion a billion dollars is an unthinkable amount of money. Like you cannot. I hope people hear what I just said. If you make minimum wage, it would take you 65,000 years to make a billion dollars. So I think we need to have, we have enough money. We spend $780 billion a year on our on our military, right? A military that we, we have no enemies right now. We have no real threats. And mm-hmm. we have some people that we don't get along with. So, you know, maybe a $50 billion military, whatever. But like we are spending so much money maintaining hundreds of military bases all over the world full time. We have billionaires that are not getting taxed. Um, I just read a book by uh, Charles Koch, uh, you know, really, really, really wealthy, you know, Koch brother. Yeah. And, um, you know, I tried to, I, I gave it a shot because it's about, it's about, it's called good profit. And I appreciate some of the sentiments of it. I appreciate that he, you know, uh, he and Coke Industries by and large, it seems like they've tried to do things ethically and they haven't, you know, when they did something wrong, they would fess up to it. Like they've done a lot of things that a lot of companies and uh, billionaires or just really wealthy uh, uh, business owners wouldn't do. So that's all fine and well. But at the end of the day, there's still the argument that like, it's still fine that I'm worth $60 billion and together with my brother, we're worth $120 billion. Like why, why we need that much money, why someone thinks that they need that much money to exist. Cause you could, again, you could never spend it. You could never spend that money in multiple lifetimes. If you're living a normal life. Now, if you're buying all the shit in the world, like if you're Jeff Bezos who buys $160 million uh, you know, home for his girlfriend. Well, then you see where a lot of that money goes, but nobody needs that, right? So mm-hmm. talk for a second about, that was my weird way of getting to this question, which is how do, we can pay for it, I think, I believe. I'm not an economist and I'm not a politician, so I don't know exactly how we pay for it, but I just mentioned a couple things. Like how do we, how do we pay for this? Mm-hmm. How can people listening begin to communicate if they if they believe in this idea of UBI if they believe in this idea of mm-hmm. give people money so that they can so that they so they're not struggling with very basic needs in 
the richest, wealthiest country that's ever existed. Like it shouldn't happen, as you pointed out. Like there should at least be a UBI for kids. Like we have more kids in poverty here than any other nation that's even close to where we are, you know, economically yeah. or in, in terms of development. Yeah. So how do we pay for this, Annie? Yeah, it's it's expensive that we don't pay for it. This is a yes. point that I like to make, right? Yep. Um, there's plenty. We are not resource constrained, right? Yep. Like we we aren't. The United States uh, um, is not resource constrained in the sense that there isn't money to tax. You can make an argument about fairness, right? Mm -hmm. Is it fair? Are taxes confiscatory at some point? Um, is taxation theft? Like, I think that this is all like very dorm room and ridiculous, but sure. fine. Um, but just in terms of, you know, um, there's a paper that I really like by this economist, Harry Holzer at Georgetown, that points out that our disinvestment in children and our rates of child poverty cost us something uh, like $500 billion a year in lost output because um, people don't end up getting the degrees that they might have. Uh, people with brilliant ideas never make it to the field where they could perform that, that brilliance and that would be a social good. Um, we end up with more healthcare spending. We end up uh, with more spending on incarceration. Um, and, um, you know, people are not as productive uh, because they, they grew up poor, right? And, and, and that's the thing that, that, that drives me a little bit crazy is the country is going to be wealthy if, if all of us get to flourish. And right now, only some of us get to flourish. And it depends yes. a lot on, on yes. who, who you were born to and where you were born. And so um, poverty is, is a policy choice, and it's a really expensive one. And that's, that's the thing that, that I think about it is the country would be so much better off if all kids grew up in a home where they were not food insecure, where they had a high quality public education, where they had access to healthcare. Um, so then there's this question of like, okay, well, well, how do you actually do it? So the United States um, taxes about 25% of its GDP. And most other OECD countries tax about 40%, in some case more, right? Um, and so, you know, do you have somewhat slower growth, a little bit less business formation, like maybe on the margin, but you get the advantage of having people who, who, who don't grow up and, and can't achieve their potential and are, are less healthy. You know, there's tons of, yes, as you point out, we, we spend a huge amount on our military, um, um, more than our peer countries do. And we actually provide a lot of um, military coverage for some of our NATO friends, right? Like other people spend less because we spend so much. Yep, yep. Um, we spend a ton on healthcare without covering people. And this is like an actually legitimately really thorny um, uh, problem to solve. But if we had universal benefits and lower healthcare prices, you could rationalize the whole system such that you could cover everybody at a much lower cost. So right now, um, health spending is about 15% of GDP in the United States. In other countries, it's something like 10%. And that's just a huge amount of money and it accumulates every year. So yeah, the, the money is out there. Um, and I would note that, that a lot of our peer countries, uh, before the tax and transfer system, they have similar levels of inequality to us. We just do less about it. Mm. Um, so we create billionaires as a policy choice and we, we create poor folks as, and poor families as a policy choice. And I think that both of those are questionable, <laughs> questionable policy choices. Um, 
And I would note that, you know, yes, taxing, taxing billionaires and, and preventing so many from existing um, is, is probably important, but it also just, you know, it means like taxing the 10% and probably the 50% more too. It means everybody putting a little bit more in, but hopefully getting a lot more out. Again, I am not opposed to people making as much money as they can. Right. I'm, I'm very, I'm very pro, you know, create and, and make stuff and build. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I am busier than I ever have been in my life because I'm building multiple things and and I'm seeing really cool things happen as a result of it. But we, there's, there's a few, there's a few problems I see. So I grew up real quick context. I, my dad is, I'm a son of an immigrant. My dad's Guatemalan. He was born in Guatemala, came here, and then we moved back for 10 years. So I lived in Guatemala growing up. And then before coming back to live in the States, I spent six years traveling the world. So I got to see a lot. I mean, uh, incredibly poor countries and incredibly rich countries. Uh, and I, I've, I've, I lived in the bush of Zambia, Africa for six weeks, you know, you know, literally walking and biking everywhere, you know, uh, taking little wooden boats across crocodile infested rivers. I did that. And I've stayed in the nicest hotels in Vienna, Austria and everything in between. So I've seen, I've seen what's out there. Right. And then I came back here in my mid twenties and started living here, you know, full time. Mm -hmm. And, um, American individualism and this idea of the American exceptionalism that we are the best nation, that we're the best nation that's ever, you know, been on the planet, blah, 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 which I don't believe we are. And this American individualism where it's, we, we, we are so, we're already fractured, you know, in, in, in terms of like 50 states, every state has their own government. It's, it's led to a lot of the problems that we're talking about, but also just everybody and I say everybody, that's a very big blanket statement. Obviously, there's a lot of like very generous giving people in this country. But as a whole, we care about our own ourselves and we don't give a shit about other people, right? And mm-hmm. and then we look, we think we're we think we're amazing if we do mm-hmm. care about other people. We think it we think it's a really good thing if mm-hmm. we give some of what we have to someone else, versus this idea that a rising tide raises all ships. Like if we can, if we can have a country where there's nobody below the poverty line, that's good for everybody, mm-hmm. right? And a UBI could help accomplish that. What is the poverty line? It's like twelve or thirteen thousand dollars. A thousand dollars a month would make would make sure that every family in the United States is above the poverty line. That is going to help because what we're not realizing that we're overworked, we're underpaid here. Obviously, you know, we look at the the minimum wage, which I addressed earlier, would take you $65,000, 65,000 years to become a billionaire. It's not changed in the last like 20, 30 years. It's the same, even though inflation and everything's gotten bigger and more expensive, we're still paying people like we want them to work three jobs in order to have, you know, a barely decent income. And so everybody's stressed out. We're not healthy. Mm -hmm. We're not living, we're not living our best lives because Mm -hmm. money is an issue. Like money Mm -hmm. is one of the biggest things that causes people to um, hurt themselves. You know, lots of people take, take their lives because of things like this. Lots of families are broken apart. And as you've addressed multiple times, it seems to be something that's like part of your heart and part of who you are is like kids, like we're not taking care of our kids. And so I really think that there has to be a fundamental change in how we think as a country about each other. Right. And I think that leads to this even political divide where, you know, I'm vehemently anti- everything that Trump is about. And I'm vehemently not anti-Republican. I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't line up with any of their, I shouldn't say any of their policies. I'm sure there's something that I could get along with, but you know what I'm saying? Like overall, that's not my jam, 
but I want to still get along with them. I want to still figure out how can we work together to make this place better? Because right now, as it currently is, I've been back for, I've been back for 12 or 13 years living in the US and I've not enjoyed, I mean, I truly, and I say this truly, and it's sad, but I've not enjoyed living here one, one day of the last 13 years because I've seen that there are, I've seen people that are way happier than most Americans I've met in the bush of Zambia, Africa, in, you know, like backwoods, Jamaica, they have nothing and they're so much happier with so little, right? So I've seen that and I come back here and people just shit on each other all the time and don't, don't have this desire to collectively prop, you know, help everybody rise, you know, Mm -hmm. how do we, how do we change that? I, 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 I might be asking a question that you can't answer because I, I can't answer either. But what is your opinion? How do we move forward from this? How do we get to the place where more people think, yeah, we can do this. We can we can implement a UBI. We can have you know mm-hmm. universal health care. We can have these things that other countries have done, and it, it's going to make us happier. If people mm-hmm. have if people are provided for, they're going to be happier. If five hundred thousand people don't have to go bankrupt in this country anymore just because of medical bills. That's just medical bills. People go bankrupt because they can't pay their doctor bill because they had a heart attack, you know? Like, that's fucked up. That's like multiple levels of fucked up that in this country, mm-hmm. half a million people, one out of every 600 people goes bankrupt every year. One out of every, yeah, six, yeah. Like, that's insane. It's so upsetting. So I think it's such a good question. Like, how do you how do you construct social solidarity? Um because I feel like historically, the way that this would happen um, would be through things like wars, right? Um, <laughs> which is really awful. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't mean um, the word self, but right, like um, a sense of integration, of being in it all together, of having something to fight for. And obviously, that's not something that you know, you want for <laughs> any number of reasons. Um, but yeah, how do you, how do you foment that identity? How do you depolarize? How do you bring people together? One, one of the good trends that I do think has come out of the past few years um, is that uh, you have seen among um, self-identified liberal white folks, um, uh, real, and like we have polling to show this, they're much more concerned about racism. They recognize it as a much mm-hmm. bigger issue and they think that um, the government can solve it. And I think that that is, obviously I think it would have been better if everybody had realized that 10 or 20 years ago. Sure. But I do think that this new civil rights movement has actually moved public opinion in, in a useful and a correct direction. That's That's great. Again, one of the, silver linings, I suppose, of this really fractious, horrible time has been um, that people's views of immigration have moderated, in fact, um, due to the Trump administration. And that's really interesting. None of which exactly points to a way to create this multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. But I do think that making things more democratic um, is a really good and a very achievable thing um, to have happen. Uh, Republicans are increasingly relying on anti-democratic measures to shore up their support. So voter suppression, gerrymandering, those kind of things. Um, 
you can fight that, right? Uh, you can make it easier for people to vote and, and therefore for people to feel like they have some, some true participation in, in democracy. And then I do think that you're right, that there, there could be this really powerful demonstration effect of, yeah, the government can deliver stuff for you. The government can deliver $2,000 checks in a pandemic. Um, the government can just deliver healthcare, right? Like we can keep the USPS going. We can create postal banking. Um, and I, I think it's it's something that I hope that Democrats think about going forward is like, what are you actually just showing people that government can do? Because mm. as you point out, like we could have tremendous state capacity and we just choose not to use it. Um, but yeah, we can get rid of student loan debt. Um, we can, you know, eliminate uh, bankruptcies due to, to medical bills. Um, and I think thinking both about increasing spending, but also in, in, in just making policies that work better, making the actual literal government work better, um, you know, could that, could that convince people that, um, that this is, you know, a project worth investing in? Um, but I do, I think that the polarization and the um, antipathy towards both sides is, it's really hard. And I don't think that there's great answers. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's very difficult, very complex. I would highly recommend uh, Ezra's book to everyone, Why We're Polarized, which also came out this past year, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, time is a blur at this point, but it's been Yeah, a year. it came out it's, right before COVID. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a truly fantastic book. Um, and, you know, I... I I think a lot of people, because we're so individualistic in this country, we don't take these things seriously until yeah. something happens to us, right? right. Just, just recently, you know, I saw Meghan McCain, you know, this, it was a big story a couple of days ago that she, you know, on The View sort of proposed, uh, you know, we've got to take this, we've got to take uh, maternity leave more seriously. Yeah. Because, you know, she was able to stay home with her kid for three months and, you know, get paid to do it. And yeah. that's, a, that's a great thing that, again, you would think that there are countries that give, you know, a year of maternity leave and six, seven, eight months of paternity leave so that, you know, so the partners can stay home with with their wives to, like, help help take care of things, right? They don't have to, they don't have to go back after two weeks. Um, when we had our first kid, I had to, I had, well, actually, it's really funny going, thinking back when we um, adopted or when we were trying to adopt and we had to go, when the baby was born in Alabama, we went down to be with the birth mother and I had to take, I was working, you know, at a company in Minneapolis and I had to use vacation days. I had to use all my vacation days for the year to go and that ended up being a failed adoption and it was just a really weird time. But, you know, and then when we had our kids, like I, I, couldn't now I can now I have the freedom to do that but back then I had I, there was no paternity leave maybe a week maybe two but it was like okay now get back to work who gives a fuck about your kid you know like we figure it out we need you back here like grinding and like making stuff and so it's it's you know when you have people that are so out of touch when you have you know Mitch McConnell opposing two thousand dollar checks you know, and he's worth some $30 million. Well, that doesn't, the reason that it's so easy for him to say, we can't, we can't find this money. We can't, uh, you know, we can't enact this. Even the president said $2,000 checks and his motivations are, I think, very evident as to why he was doing it at the time. But yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard being here 
amongst millions of people that won't get on board with something like this or socialized healthcare or maternity leave or whatever until it affects them. Megan came around and said, I now want to fight for this. We should fight for this here on The View. This should be a main subject. I'm like, well, cool. I'm glad you came around. But why did it have to take you having a baby for you to realize this is a big deal? Like the data's been out there. The data on UBI, you said it's been around for 500 years. People have been talking about this for centuries. Mm-hmm. And no one's enacted, no one's really truly taken it on and made it a real thing. Um, and so it's, it's I, I'm, I'm simultaneously, I have some hope that maybe in the next four years with mm-hmm. a more unified government that we can get more done. But I don't feel hopeful that America as a whole is gonna like jump on board. I love the idea of a UBI and I'm also like, will that ever happen here? You know, it's it's a weird feeling back and forth, like a little bit of hope. When I'm talking to you and I'm thinking about it, I'm like, man, we can do this. We can do this. Let's do this. And it just, it doesn't seem like it would happen in this sort of, in the environment that we've created, the very polarized environment. I mean, while we're talking right now, uh, Proud Boys and Trump supporters have stormed the Capitol building. And yeah. they, they have not, like literally five minutes ago, I'm getting texts right now. You know, it's like, it's live. They're in the building. They've stormed it by the thousands. And they're like, well, they're not getting shot with pepper you know, pepper bullets and they're not being pepper sprayed because it's all white people. You know, if you look back at the, the protests over the summer for black lives matter, which was a mix of all kinds of people. I mean, a lot of my friends got arrested. A lot of my friends were hurt, uh, during these protests. And then right now, uh, thousands of people are trying to delegitimize the way things work in our government and nothing's happening to them. So it's just, it feels really weird. I don't know where I'm going with this little rant, but it just feels like I'm simultaneously hopeful, like most mm. subjects. I'm hopeful and also like not hopeful. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. And I do, I think that, um, you know, it's hard to imagine something big and and radical like UBI coming into place. But I do think that there's a lot that could be done to make the government work better and make people's lives better. Um that that's smaller bore, but would be really effective. So I'm really hopeful that we might get pre-K three and four universal pre-K passed. Um, that would be great for kids. It would also be great for parents, yep. right? Like what if just as soon as your ter- kid turned three, there's no longer your responsibility to figure out preschool and to pay for it monthly, right? Like what if that was something that the, the state took care of? Um, you know, similarly, I think that that just making things work a little bit better, there's um, the unemployment insurance system really f- failed a lot of people in 2020. It was very hard to apply for benefits. It's these clunky state systems that don't really work that well. And so there's now a real push to just federalize it, right? Just like make that a function of, yeah. of the Department of Labor in Washington. That way the states don't even have to deal with it. And you could easily set federal policy for that. Can make a, a new, easier to apply for system, just make it a lot faster. And so, you know, like, is is that UBI? No, but that is just making government work a little bit better and making things more responsive to people's needs. Um, it is one thing that I always like remark on is that the internet has not made any of this e- easier, right? Like we still spend how many hours, you know, figuring out our own healthcare and, um, or grappling with these state unemployment yep, systems. Yep. And so I think that that just having government work a little bit better um, and demonstrating to people that that government can do this, you know, like yeah, it, it could 
maybe not the big radical thing, but I do think that there'll be this kind of like slow progress um, towards completing the safety net and and to making the system work. Yeah, it's a good reminder that we, you know, this is an elephant and how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, you know? Yeah. Um, like you've got, I think we need to stay focused. I, you know, I have these big radical ideas and big things that I'm working on, but the reality is those things may not happen in our lifetime unfortunately, yeah. but we can make these small incremental changes, right? Yep. And we need to, we need more young people with great ideas in office, right? We need yes. more people running for office. We need more people, you know, giving a damn in their community and starting programs. And, and, and if, you know, if we want to counteract this old, you know, billionaire kind of thinking, well, we need to, we need to create more companies that are um, equitable. We need to create yeah. more companies that, truly reward all the people that got us here versus fucking them over and Mm -hmm. becoming billionaires while they can't afford rent, you know, in whatever Mm -hmm. city they're in, you know, you've got the people living in the, the Amazon employee that lives in their van. There was a big story done a couple years ago, they live in their van in the parking lot because they can't afford to live in Seattle. How is that possible that you're, that you're working at the place, the, a, a place started by the wealthiest man on planet earth. And yet, you're living in your car, like that's insane. And we've so anyway, I, I I think that's a good attitude to keep. Um, as we look at UBI, I hope that we can accomplish it. And I hope that you know, one thing is we've got to have small examples of it happening, right? Yeah, we've got to see a lot of this. I, I, I don't think it we need that example again. The data is clear, but people oftentimes don't listen to that data, they want to see it exemplified first. And so, as we wrap up here, like. What are some of the examples? Give me a couple, if you can, examples of this working in different places. Again, not statewide or even countrywide, but things like this have happened. And oh, absolutely, yeah. In, in my mind, when I've looked at these stories, looked at these examples, looked at the data, it's like, well, yeah, it works. Like, look at how much happier and better off people are. So, can you give people a couple examples as we begin to wrap up today? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the CARES Act, this giant piece of legislation, which passed last spring. Um, it did two big things to, to support families, direct support to families. So one was that the, um, and this was thanks to some Democratic senators, um, we added $600 a week to regular unemployment insurance payments. And we radically expanded the size of, of the unemployment insurance system so that if you were a gig worker, you could get those payments. And so before, you know, you kind of had to be formally employed, but yep. now if you were like a sole proprietor or, you know, you were delivering for DoorDash or something, you qualified as long as you had lost income. And it's a, it's a thing that I think people don't always remember about unemployment insurance. It's not just if you lose your job, it's also if you have lost income, it'll help with income replacement. So there's that. And then there were the checks, the $1,200 checks that went out to folks. And um, this was so big, so fast, and so effective that the federal government replaced all of the income that families lost in the spring and the summer until the UI money ran out. Yep. Not every family was made whole, but on net, this giant gaping hole created by by this joblessness crisis caused by COVID, we actually patched it. It was remarkable. We did it with cash. (laughs) And and again, it wasn't perfect. Um, In some ways it was clunky. It could have been faster. We could have reached more people. There were a ton of people who were left out. Um, In particular, people... um, uh, uh, with an undocumented immigration status um, and their families. Um, 
so that that was bad. But this was like an example that government worked and it was so effective that we have had a better GDP result than most of our peer countries. Mm. Now, granted, those countries have kept people attached to their jobs by having the government just pay them. And yep. so instead of losing your job, you would get these payments. Part of the reason it would have been hard to do that here is that we have um, much less unionization and much weaker unions. And so there where the unions are much more involved in government, it was a little bit easier to do. They, in some cases, had these systems already set up. Um, but nevertheless, like it really worked. The cash really helped. So I'd point to that. Um, the ACA uh, was a really flawed piece of legislation. It was the only thing that could pass. It was not what Democrats wanted. But one thing that I think has worked really well is the Medicaid expansion. So in the states that have expanded, um, we've added millions of people to Medicaid. And I'm old enough to remember when Medicaid was described as like insurance that wasn't worth having. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, people love it. It's great. It's insurance. You can go to the doctor, you can go to the hospital on Medicaid. And we've actually had great health results because of it. It's reduced bankruptcies, as you point out. It's, you know, it's, um, and it's absolutely insurance worth having. And so I think those are two big examples where like government, like, you know, like not bad, that was great, right? <laughs> like really, really helped people. And I hope that we learn from, from both of those. I really hope that the Medicaid expansion continues. The remaining states that still haven't taken that federal match, take it because um, we can get more people covered. And we could, we could expand Medicaid even more, right? Right now it covers um, childless adults up to 138% of the federal poverty line. That could be 200, it could be 300. Um, and, and that would be really great for people. And similarly, like the UI expansion was wonderful. And those $600 top-up checks did, did so great. And we saw um, how much of a stimulative effect it had versus uh, the sort of slower and smaller stimulus from the Great Recession. And I think that as hard as it is right now and as bad as things are, you know, some things did go well in 2020. And so the, the, that's one of the things that I would point to. Yeah, that's really helpful because it did. I mean, I think a lot of people aren't thinking about those things right now because we're still sort of in it. Yes, absolutely. But I think once we're out of this, if we ever manage to, I mean, I know we will, but it's not happening as quickly as it should be. Uh, once we're out of this, we'll look back and have that data, have those numbers and see how effective that was. And hopefully yep. we can use that to argue for these systems and processes that just make it easier for people to exist, to live, yes. to buy, yep. to buy groceries and to not not be homeless, right? It's, it, yep. I mean, those those programs you mentioned helped people pay their rent, pay their bills, buy groceries, stay in their homes, and they're still yep. there today, yeah. uh, thank God, because of those policies. And so, yeah, that's really great. It's not called UBI, but it really helped people in the last year. And we just need to figure out how to make that more uh, ongoing in perpetuity. Yes. How can we uh -huh. help people uh, exist? Because in, in this last thing I'll say, one thing I love about I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how this this really plays out in in real life. But there are a lot of people who aren't going to need if they, if some sort of a UBI were to ever take place. I would be one of those that wouldn't need it, thankfully, and I would be able to use that to in like in give give away to people, um, yep. help help the the causes and charities and nonprofits that I love stay afloat. And I think there's a lot of people that it would it would it would stimulate our economy in so many ways. Cause there's a lot of people that it would literally save their fucking lives. Yep. And then for those of us that are doing okay, again, thank God, like we could use those resources to bless others, help others and, 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 uh, again, stimulate who we are and, and 
yeah, con- continued living, continue existing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's a great way of thinking about it is, you know, if, if you don't need it, that's fine. <laughs> you can always pass it on. Um, but having that safety net for people um, and, and having it always there, um, it's, an, it's an option. It's a thing that we can do. I love it. Well, yeah. this, has been, this has been a pleasure. Um, again, long time coming, a book yeah. that, I, that I love and want people to go get immediately. Um, <laughs> where can people find out more about who you are, what you're doing? I don't know if you're writing any, any more books or just where can they find out more about who you are and what you're doing? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a staff writer at the Atlantic and so you can, you can find me on my author page there. Um, I have no Facebook, um, and I don't really use Twitter anymore. Um, but, uh, I do have a Twitter feed where I will occasionally, uh, post articles. It's actually Ezra posts that I can't even log in anymore. Uh, he posts <laughs> them for me. Um, but yeah, you can you can catch me in in the print magazine and and online. Uh, yeah, that's that's where all my work is. I love it. Well, thanks for joining us today, Annie. Thank you so much for having me. Friends, thanks for joining Annie and me today. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for more resources and links. And while you're there, Sign up for our email list and you can listen to all the other 175 podcast conversations we've recorded over the past couple of years. And lastly, thank you all for listening. I'm truly honored you come back week after week to listen to these conversations. 2021 is going to be an incredible year of growth for us and I'm glad you're here for it. This show is produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love y'all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.